This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Griselda needed quiet. She couldn't think with all this noise. Her friends were screaming over each other. The young boy they'd kidnapped sat in front of her, tied up, gagged, and wailing. The plan was to kidnap the 10-year-old boy, take him back to the hills, and wait for his rich parents to pay the ransom. But the boy's family refused to pay up, and there was no backup plan. She hadn't thought this far ahead. She'd never done this before. After all, Griselda was only 11 years old. One of the older boys dared Griselda to shoot the boy. It's not like he was any use to them if his family wouldn't pay the ransom. Griselda's grip tightened around the gun in her hands. He was right. The boy's parents didn't take their schoolyard gang seriously. No one believed any of them would be willing to torture, to kill, to do the necessary thing. Griselda stood in front of the whimpering boy, pointed the gun in his face, and pulled the trigger. The next time Griselda Blanco demanded a ransom, no one would dare refuse to pay it. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. This is our first of three episodes on Griselda Blanco, also known as La Madrina, the Black Widow, and the Cocaine Godmother. This week, we'll discuss Griselda's upbringing in Medellin, Colombia, and her rise to power as one of the first cocaine drug lords in New York City. 
Next time, we'll dive deeper into Griselda's life at the height of her power. We'll also explore the lasting impact she had on the Miami community. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Now, let's dive into the life of Queen Pen Griselda Blanco. It was a warm summer evening in 1976. Griselda Blanco wandered the edge of the room, eyeing the friends and associates who'd gathered at her mansion outside Medellin, Colombia. They were dancing, laughing, drinking. As far as they knew, She'd called the party for no reason at all. Rumors were still swirling about the 33-year-old Queenpin's return to Colombia the previous year and the mysterious death of her husband, Alberto, just a few months afterwards. But none of that was on Griselda's mind. It was all in the past. All she cared about was the future. With her husband out of the way, she was the sole proprietor of an $80 million a month cocaine empire. Griselda was already making plans for her return to the United States. She had forged documents, a new identity, and acquired several new houses in Miami. Her children would be well taken care of. She might even find a new husband, if someone came along who knew their place. Griselda's eyes twinkled like the diamonds in her ears as she took in the room. She would miss living in Colombia. She'd always preferred it to the U.S., But life wasn't all about pleasure. She had business to attend to. She touched the pearls at her throat, the same pearls that were once owned by Eva Perón, the former first lady of Argentina. Griselda loved everything Eva symbolized. Grace, femininity, poise, respect, power. The gesture wasn't just for comfort. It was a signal. When her guards saw her touch the necklace, they jumped forward from their stations. Within seconds, they grabbed four party guests and brought them to the center of the room. Griselda tapped her champagne glass and called for quiet. The band died down and the chatter hushed to a whisper. These four boys were suspected of treason, she announced. They had to be dealt with accordingly. The guards cocked their guns. Before anyone could react, Four swift shots were fired and the four boys dropped dead to the floor. Without another word, the bodies were hauled out of the main hall and into a truck to be dumped among the rest of the garbage. Nobody moved, except a trio of household staff who rushed over to clean up the blood. Griselda gazed over the silent, pale faces. This was the reason for the party to see the fear in their eyes when they realized she was the one in control. Griselda clinked her champagne glass once more. She said, nothing has happened here, so let us continue with the party. And just like that, the band started up again. Everyone went back to their conversations. Everyone except those four boys who had dared to rebel against Griselda Blanco. Much of Griselda Blanco's life is shrouded in mystery. Given the nature of her work in the drug trade, there are parts of her life that can only be told through speculation and secondhand accounts. 
As we try to piece together Griselda's story, we'll make sure to tell you what is fact and what is rumor. Griselda Blanco was born in February 1943. She spent the first few years of her life in Cartagena, Colombia, with her mother, Ana. Little is known about Griselda's mother. Even less is known about Griselda's father, whose name was either Fernando or Luis Carlos. When Griselda was three, she and her mother moved to Medellin, a 12-hour drive south of Cartagena. Ana and Griselda were terribly poor, and the bigger city promised more job opportunities. But Medellin was also notorious for its crime-riddled slums. Griselda and Ana lived in Medellin's Barrio Trinidad, where pickpocketing, mugging, and violence were frequent occurrences. The everyday crime was exacerbated by the civil war that was happening in Colombia in the 1940s, after a Liberal Party presidential candidate was assassinated in 1948, a violent clash broke out between the Liberal and Conservative parties. An estimated 215,000 people were killed during the 10-year conflict. Growing up in a world like this, crime and violence felt normal for children like Griselda. As she got older, she likely felt it was necessary to commit crimes in order to survive. She started small, pickpocketing unsuspecting citizens around Medellin. By the time she was 10, she'd escalated to breaking into houses and cars, targeting the wealthy elite who had better loot to steal. Eventually, Griselda amassed a small gang of neighborhood kids. Working together, they could move on to bigger and better scams. Theft would only get them so far. They needed a more profitable crime, blackmail, extortion, kidnapping. The first two were unlikely for a group of young kids like themselves, but the third was definitely a possibility. The kids scouted the affluent neighborhoods of Medellin and hung around the local schools, picking out the perfect target. They chose a 10-year-old boy from a wealthy family, just a year younger than Griselda. The details of the kidnapping aren't documented. Either there were no witnesses or no one watching thought anything of it since the kidnappers themselves were children. They took the boy out to the hills, contacted his parents, and told them to pay up. The parents responded essentially with a shrug. Either they didn't believe a group of kids would hurt their son, or they just didn't care. Either way, the ransom never came. So Griselda did exactly what she promised to do. Griselda was never arrested for the murder. The boy's family probably never even found out the little 11-year-old girl was the one who'd killed their son. Griselda was no stranger to violence. Some sources suggest her mother was abusive and an alcoholic. Their home life became even more difficult a few years later. When Griselda was 14, her mother's boyfriend attempted to rape her. It's likely Griselda went to her mother about the assault, but she either didn't believe her or didn't bother to do anything about it. After that incident, Griselda had had enough. She left the family's house for good. On her own, 14-year-old Griselda made most of her money through pickpocketing. Many sources suggest she also made ends meet through sex work, though Griselda always denied that part of her story. According to the biography Cocaine Cowgirl, it was probably through sex work that Griselda met her first husband, Carlos Trujillo, 
around 1957. At the time, Griselda was still in her early teens. Carlos was older, probably in his 20s. To earn a living, he forged U.S. passports and smuggled marijuana. This was no problem for Griselda. It's possible she admired Carlos for his criminal work ethic or simply saw him as a means to an end, a way out of poverty. Soon after they met, they were married. Working alongside Carlos was Griselda's first taste of what a real criminal enterprise can be. There are a few details about Carlos's life and crimes, but we can presume he taught her the art of forging U.S. passports. By the time Griselda was 25 in 1968, the couple had three sons, Dixon, Uber, and Osvaldo. Griselda presumably stayed home, forging passports and taking care of the children, while Carlos went off on his smuggling expeditions. Griselda and Carlos were together for over a decade, but Griselda had a mind of her own, and the partnership could only last her so long. After one too many business disputes, Griselda and Carlos separated at the end of the 1960s. Almost immediately, Griselda found a new beau, Carlos's friend, Alberto Bravo. It's hard to say what attracted Griselda to Alberto. It was probably his bank account. Alberto had $26,000 in savings, equal to $170,000 today. There was only one way you made that kind of money in Medellin. Alberto was a cocaine trafficker, and a pretty successful one by the day's standards. The cocaine trade was only just beginning to take hold in Colombia, but it was proving to be far more lucrative than marijuana. Griselda knew what Alberto was up to, and she wanted in. There was only one problem to take care of, Carlos. Carlos and Griselda were separated, but divorce was illegal in Colombia. They would still be legally married till death do them part. Conveniently, around the exact same time Griselda and Alberto got together in about 1970, Carlos suddenly died of hepatitis. Most sources are in agreement that Griselda actually had Carlos killed, but that's never been proven. But what was done was done, and what was dead was dead. With Carlos out of the way, Griselda was free to marry Alberto, which she did in 1971. She was 28 years old. Griselda saw bigger and brighter things ahead, but Alberto wasn't about to trust his budding empire to a girl he just met. Griselda had to prove her usefulness first, and that meant starting from the bottom of the ladder. Coming up, we'll take a look at Griselda's introduction to cocaine. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Griselda dragged her suitcase through the airport, keeping her eyes to the floor. She tried to forget about the contraband hidden inside her luggage. 
when her husband Alberto had asked her to fly to Bolivia and pick up some coca paste, she'd agreed without hesitating. It wasn't even technically cocaine she was smuggling, just the raw, unprocessed main ingredient. But if airport security catches you with a suitcase full of flour, eggs, and sugar, they know damn well you're about to bake a cake. If she raised any suspicion, the police would link her right back to her husband's drug empire. Griselda passed two security guards. She kept her eyes down, then looked up and smiled at them through her lashes. They tipped their hats at her and kept walking. She'd made it to the gate. She handed her boarding pass to a stewardess. And just like that, she was boarding her plane back to Colombia. Griselda made it back safe and sound. She'd won Alberto's trust. She was one step closer to taking over his cocaine operation. As some of our listeners might know, cocaine is derived from coca leaves, which are native to South America. Coca has been used for medicinal and religious purposes for centuries and was first popularized in the United States with the creation and marketing of Coca-Cola in 1886. But for most of the early 20th century, it wasn't nearly as popular on the drug scene as heroin or marijuana. Cocaine was effectively outlawed by the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914, and then further regulations were put in place under the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. It was at that exact moment that the drug rocketed to popularity, and where there is demand, supply will follow. Alberto Bravo was one of the first Colombians to get in on the cocaine trade. He smuggled in raw coca paste from Bolivia, then processed it into cocaine at labs he'd set up in old factories around Medellin. Then his drug mules took the white powder up to the U.S. to be sold. This was years before Pablo Escobar and his associates formed the infamous Medellin cartel. In the early 70s, there were no cartels. Cocaine operations were much smaller, and most smugglers were still focused on marijuana. This was good news for Alberto, who took full advantage of the lack of competition. Not much is known about the early years of his organization, but by all appearances, it was pretty successful. After Griselda and Alberto were married in 1971, they began working as partners. The business was already lucrative, but once Griselda got involved, it grew rapidly. The DEA estimated that Alberto and Griselda employed 600 people at their operation's peak, including processing lab workers, smugglers, and street dealers. The details and inner workings of their earlier operation are unclear. Even after Griselda became a queen pin, she was considered paranoid and secretive. Much of her life and career is left to speculation. In the early 1970s, Griselda and Alberto decided they needed to take their business to the next level. They packed their bags and moved to the epicenter of the world's cocaine market, New York City. Cocaine was the drug of choice for people who wanted to work hard and play hard. Celebrities, socialites, and high-powered executives. The psychedelic 60s were over. The fast pace of the 70s demanded a stimulant, where else to recruit customers but on Wall Street? 
Griselda and Alberto bought a home in Queens and set themselves up as clothing importers. They opened a garment factory and lingerie shop as a means of laundering the money from their cocaine business. Operations continued as usual, with drug mules bringing in the product from Colombia. But there was one problem. Their mules were getting caught left and right. Griselda had smuggled drugs herself. She understood that women, especially pretty ones, were typically overlooked by security. They could get away with a suitcase full of drugs by distracting the guards with their good looks. So, instead of using young men as mules, they started hiring women. Smuggling paid better and was considerably safer than sex work, so there was no shortage of girls desperate to join their ranks. The plan worked for a while, but eventually security measures tightened. By 1972, even the most beautiful women couldn't walk onto a plane with suitcases full of cocaine. Griselda molded over during her days at the lingerie shop. Her mind was in a different world as she greeted customers, scribbled down measurements, tallied up the sales. And that's when the idea hit her. She noticed that a lot of women stored money in their bras. It was the perfect hiding place for cash or cocaine. Male security guards wouldn't dare demean a lady by checking her undergarments. Even if they were stopped for a luggage inspection, their mules could continue on undetected. Griselda and Alberto immediately hired a team of skilled tailors who drew up designs for a whole line of products, bras, panties, girdles, all with hidden pockets to stash the drugs. Griselda took a hands-on approach. She fitted the girls herself when they arrived in New York. As she took their measurements, they traded gossip and advice. Griselda was only 29, but she considered herself a mother figure to the younger, impressionable girls. She knew what life was like in Colombia. She'd been through it all. Abuse, homelessness, stealing, killing, marrying, separating, child-rearing. She knew firsthand what awaited these girls if they couldn't make money with their clothes on. When the garments were finished, she called the mules over to her apartment and explained the drill. She held up the girdle and showed off the hidden pockets, which were stuffed with wads of cash. Money goes out to Colombia, cocaine comes back in to New York, and repeat. Griselda helped her girls into their girdles and left them to finish getting dressed. Soon, the girls emerged from the bedroom, dressed and ready. Griselda reviewed the flight information one last time, called a taxi, and sent them off to the airport. Easy as pie. Griselda made her way back into the apartment, basking in her own genius. That is, until she saw Alberto waiting for her inside. He told her that one of their best mules, Mariela Zapata, had been caught by customs at the airport. The net loss of the cocaine they'd seized was $115,000. Griselda ignored the urge to smash something. She didn't really care about the profits, she was mostly upset for Mariella. Even though Mariella was four years older than Griselda, she felt protective over her. All her employees were like surrogate daughters. Alberto asked Griselda if she thought Mariella would snitch. Griselda shook her head. Her girls were loyal to her. They'd take her secrets to the grave. 
They knew what they were getting into, and they knew their families would be well taken care of if they got into trouble. This one arrest was really just a small blip on their otherwise clear radar. Since they'd started the lingerie smuggling scheme, there had been far fewer arrests and seizures than usual. It was a win for Griselda and Alberto, whose international drug running was going off without a hitch. It was also a win for the women, who were raking in a few hundred dollars for every successful trip, worth about two or three thousand today. Once things were running smoothly, Griselda and Alberto began to live separately. Alberto stayed in the U.S., and by 1973, Griselda went back to Colombia to keep an eye on the other end of the business. They saw little of each other, only reuniting every few months when business circumstances brought them back together. It's likely their marriage was one of convenience rather than true love. Griselda also had her children to consider. Four-year-old Osvaldo, eight-year-old Uber, and 10-year-old Dixon. They followed her everywhere she went, and it's possible she wanted them to be raised in their own country, amongst their own culture. Griselda didn't try to hide the family business from her children. She and her associates passed cocaine around right in front of them. The boys were young, but they knew those lines of white dust weren't powdered sugar. When they made trips from Columbia to New York, Griselda packed her son's suitcases full of cocaine. No one would bother to check their luggage. And if they did, she had a backup plan in the works. When we come back, we'll take a look at Griselda's plan to pull the entire Medellin airport staff onto her payroll. Now back to the story. When Griselda Blanco celebrated her 30th birthday in 1973, she couldn't have been happier. Her cocaine operation was going swimmingly. They were grossing $1 million a month from their sales in New York, and she had a plan in the works to keep the drugs flowing freely. Griselda had started paying off lower-level employees at the Medellin airport, like security workers and baggage carriers, people who could use a little income boost for simply turning a blind eye to suspicious luggage. The more ground-level workers she got in her pocket, the easier it was to leverage their higher-ups onto her payroll. By around 1973, Griselda was able to secure the entire Medellin airport. Even the pilots were in the palm of Griselda's hand, all thanks to the power of the almighty dollar. There were three purposes for the effort. First, of course, the workers would allow her mules an all-access pass to get through the airport unobstructed. But secondly, the airport employees were instructed to seize drugs from any smugglers outside Griselda's circle, effectively pushing out any potential rivals. But that wasn't really a problem, as there seemingly were no rivals. No one crossed Griselda and Alberto because there was no reason to. They hired anyone, and they paid well. It was smarter and safer just to join the team. Besides, Griselda and Alberto were known for buying out rival operations before they grew big enough to become threats. That brings us to the third purpose of the airport endeavor, expanding their scope. With the airport secured, Griselda recruited pilots who could fly mass quantities of cocaine into the U.S. Controlling the air wasn't enough, though. Griselda wanted to control the water as well. 
She conned passenger and cargo boats into carrying cocaine into New York Harbor. She smuggled six kilos of cocaine onto the SS Gloria, a ship the Colombian government gave to the U.S. as a gift for the American Bicentennial Boat Race. Some of Griselda's smugglers wore wetsuits and swam ashore in New York with waterproof suitcases full of drugs. If they'd looked across New York Harbor, they might have seen another team of smugglers tossing bricks of coke to shore. The Cali Cartel, from southern Colombia, was shipping cocaine into New York City at the exact same time. But the two cartels apparently weren't even aware of each other. There were more than enough loyal customers to go around. So how were two different cartels dumping kilos of coke into New York Harbor without anyone catching on? The answer, of course, is that the police were fully aware of what was going on. They just didn't care. The U.S. was focusing their drug enforcement efforts on heroin. Heroin addicts were dropping dead left and right. The drug had even contributed to the deaths of some high-profile celebrities like Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison. Cocaine, by comparison, seemed like a relatively harmless party drug. Cocaine was an afterthought to Colombian authorities, too. They were still spending their time and resources investigating marijuana. This presented a catch-22 for smugglers. They had a perfect opportunity to import cocaine, but they had to do it quickly before their product became too popular and the authorities caught on. Cocaine boomed in popularity during the 1970s, in part due to Griselda and Alberto's operation. Their customers, which included celebrities, athletes, and politicians, loved the energy and clarity the drug gave them. But there were also huge downsides. The comedown after the high was severe, causing mood swings, depression, and even suicidal thoughts. The harsh highs and lows could make users violent, resulting in more crime and assaults. There was also a serious risk of overdose. To U.S. officials, these downsides weren't enough of a social menace to warrant going after. When the Drug Enforcement Administration was established in 1973, the task of taking down drug traffickers became significantly easier, but they still kept most of their resources focused on heroin. That started to change in 1974, when the DEA teamed up with the NYPD for Operation Banshee, so named for the large number of female suspects involved. First, there was Mariela Zapata, a drug mule who'd been caught with cocaine at an airport in New York. Then there were several instances of abandoned corsets and underwear full of cocaine in the airport bathrooms. They knew the product was coming in from Colombia and into New York City, but they didn't know who was behind it. They weren't even aware that any large-scale cocaine operations existed. But there was no way all these abandoned bras full of drugs were unconnected. Then, in 1975, the feds intercepted a shipment of 150 kilos of cocaine. It was the biggest cocaine bust in U.S. history at the time. The DEA was quick to put together that this shipment was connected to the cocaine-filled undergarments. Operation Banshee had its first serious lead. It's not clear how they discovered the drug ring's leaders, but the most likely case is that someone involved snitched. 
By April 1975, Operation Banshee had zeroed in on the two people running the show, Griselda Blanco and Alberto Bravo. Around this same time, early in 1975, Alberto told Griselda he needed to come back to Colombia to take care of some urgent business. He asked Griselda to come up to the States and keep an eye on their operations in New York while he was gone. So Alberto skipped back to Medellin and Griselda got on a plane to New York City. It was fortuitous timing for Alberto. Almost too fortuitous. Just after he made it back to Colombia in April 1975, the federal indictment came down. Griselda Blanco and 30 of her associates would be standing trial in the biggest cocaine case the U.S. had ever seen. As soon as word of the indictment got to Griselda, she immediately left New York City and fled to Colombia. When the FBI closed in, they captured 30 of Griselda and Alberto's associates, but the king and queenpins themselves were nowhere to be found. Griselda made it back to Medellin unscathed. But she looked at Alberto differently now. She knew that close call wasn't a coincidence. It's entirely possible that Alberto knew the indictment was coming and told Griselda to come back to the U.S. so the FBI would arrest her instead of him. Once the dust settled, he could grab control of the multi-million dollar empire for himself. It would have done him well to remember what happened when his old friend Carlos crossed Griselda. In the summer of 1975, Griselda was back in Medellin, but she wasn't in hiding. Some of her closest associates had been arrested in New York, but many more had not. As far as she was concerned, their operation was just getting started. Griselda and Alberto picked up right where they'd left off and kept running their international trafficking ring from the safety of Colombia. The local law enforcement wasn't giving them trouble. The Medellin airport was under their command, and they were invincible to rivals. No one was stupid or reckless enough to pick a fight with Griselda Blanco's 600-member cartel. Or so she thought. Not long after Griselda returned to Medellin, she was introduced to a young carjacker who was looking to break into the cocaine trade. His name was Pablo Escobar. Griselda's claim over the city was about to come under fire. The next chapter of her career would be bloodier than she'd ever imagined. Next week, we'll explore the war for power that decimated Medellin and Miami. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we dive deeper into Griselda's friendship-turned-rivalry with one of Medellin's other most powerful drug lords. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, 
with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Margot Perkins and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>